Well, excellent. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you, worship team. And Debbie, I hope you're on your toes this morning. So I had a great connection to the system, which just dropped like about 30 seconds ago. So you're going to be writing the PowerPoint for us this morning. And uh, yeah, there you go. See? See how well she does? She is amazing. Hey, we are going to be starting a new series this morning, and I am really thankful for it. It is a series on the book of Philippians, and I love the book of Philippians. It is uh, such an incredible book. So there were churches in Paul's ministry, and there are, there are churches where uh, relationships are very difficult, and people struggle, and, and churches that struggle with their leaders. And like the Corinthian church was that for the Apostle Paul where they always criticized him whenever he wasn't there. And there was a lot of difficult, challenging things, and, and they refused to address sin issues in the church. And he had to write to them and say, hey, you, this is what you need to do. And, and it just was like this, this relationship of, with people that he loved, but that was always difficult and tense. The Philippian church, on the other hand, was amazing. They were so close. They had such this powerful bond of love. And they were a poor church, that were so committed to the gospel. They just did amazing things that God used in huge ways. And so I am so excited about going through this book because there are so many things in this book that are a challenge for us, things that will inspire us, that will, man, we're just going to walk out of here going, okay, I want to be more like that. And it is such a positive example of what we want to be like. And uh, one of the things that I was thinking about is there are some qualities in the Philippian church that really stood out to me about this church when I came here. And so I'm just really excited for many reasons to be going through the book of Philippians. And uh, so this is, this is going to be a, a, just a wonderful study. Now the theme of Philippians, there, there's all kinds of uh, powerful themes in the book of Philippians. Uh, love really stands out. Love for others, love for God. That is a powerful theme. Many people actually choose as the theme of Philippians joy. It's a book about being joyful no matter what's going on. Um, it is a book about unity, about people that love each other and that are committed to the same things and that support each other. It's, it's a book about the gospel. Um, one of the things that you see in the book of Philippians is the preeminence, the excellence, the ultimate value, and the attractiveness of Christ. This church was in love with Jesus. The apostle Paul was in love with Jesus. But if you take all those things and you say, what is this about? It really is about living the gospel. And so in the next few weeks, I want to just challenge us as a church. I want to be challenged as an individual to live the gospel. There are many people, as they think about the gospel, they think of it as it's the good news. It's the gospel message. It's a conversation that you have with a person and a decision that you make at one point in time. And in one sense, that is true. There is a person that a person is not, there's a, there's a time when a person is not saved and they are not in Christ and they, are, they don't believe the gospel. And then there's a moment when that happens, when a person hears the gospel and maybe they've been hearing it their whole life, but at a certain point they accept it. And that's the moment where the gospel begins to take power in a person's life. But the gospel is not just for that moment. It doesn't just affect that moment and then we continue on with our life as it was or we continue on with life and the gospel is something we remember that happened a long time ago. The truth is that the gospel is something that we live in, that we think about, that occupies our perspective on everything that happens from the day we become a Christian until the day we leave this earth. As Christians, we live the gospel. And by the way, that is the one thing Satan does not want for you. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he was talking to a church, uh, the Corinthian church, you remember the ones who struggled with each other and they struggled with Paul? All those, they had all these huge problems. Well, the Apostle Paul writes to them, and this is what he says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he says, But I am afraid 
that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That you're going to be distracted from living the gospel, from seeing everything as light in life through the lens of the gospel. And instead, you're going to think about everything else. Now, just so that you know, that is Satan's plan for you. He wants you, every time you're successful, every time something good happens in your life, every time things are going well, he wants you to think about that instead of Christ. Uh, he wants you to view life through the lens of your success, through the lens of your blessing. You know, that's what happened in the Old Testament with Solomon, right? Uh, he was blessed and forgot about God. Uh, King David, when he was struggling, God was on his mind. But when he was blessed, he forgot about God. And so Satan wants to distract you from the purpose of the gospel in your life by all the good things that happen to you. When you struggle... When something goes wrong, when you face some kind of a personal tragedy, Satan wants you to see life through that perspective. He wants you to be focused on the difficulties in your life without seeing them through the lens of the gospel. And so as Christians, if, by the way, that's why so many people are so full of anxiety. Have you thought about that? Like, this is the book that challenges us not to be anxious. Well, let's think about that. If you're blessed and you don't view that through the lens of the gospel, you're afraid you might lose these earthly best blessings, so you're anxious. When things are going wrong and when you see things going south in your life and you don't see them through the lens of the gospel, you're going to be anxious. You're going to be uh, discouraged. You're going to be overwhelmed. You won't be joyful. And so this book really is about living the gospel. And that's what I want for us to take away from this. Now I want you to think about, as you consider the gospel, I want to just say a few things about why it impacts everything about your life. You know, 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So think about that. Unbelievers are unable to view things spiritually. In our uh, life group this week, <laughs> I'm glad more of you weren't there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, somehow the life group, they manipulated me. And uh, they got me to talk about my life before Christ. And every time I was sharing a few things, um, I'm like, oh, man, I shouldn't have told about that. And then they're like, no, tell us more. <laughs> I went home and I said to Michelle, why did I say all that stuff? <laughs> but you want one of the things that we talked about was how I grew up in church. I had heard the gospel. I knew the truth of the gospel, but it was not attractive to me. See, for unbelievers, it's not that they don't have the in intellectual ability to understand the words but they have the inability to understand the gospel from a spiritual perspective. I knew all these facts about Jesus, and I did not want him. And then the moment that God opened up my eyes, and in fact, I said it's, it was like what happened to Lydia, which we'll talk about because she's one of the people who started the Philippian church. And all of a sudden, God removed these blinders. I was sitting on my lawn thinking about life, and God brought to mind all these things I, that I'd learned my whole life. And all of a sudden, Jesus, instead of being unattractive, became attractive. All of a sudden, this God that made the world, that has all wisdom, instead of me saying, no, I know how to live life better than you. I realized he knows how to live life better than me. And I committed my life to following Christ. And that day, it wasn't just like this. And I shared with people some of the struggles that I had after I became a Christian. But my life a year later was completely different than the day I received Christ. Why? Because all of a sudden, I saw everything in life through the lens of the gospel. When you think about this, 
we have the mind of Christ when you're a Christian. That's why all of a sudden you see things spiritually. Your past, everything about your past, everything bad about your past is forgiven. Everything bad about your past has been redeemed. God has overcome it. Um, And here's the amazing thing. God is going to take everything you've ever done wrong in your life, every bad thing that's ever happened to you, and he's actually going to use it for good. That's what the gospel does with your past. What about your present? Man, there is no reason to worry or to be anxious because God has given us a good purpose. This good, sovereign, powerful creator has a purpose for you in your life today. The sin that you struggle with in the same way God forgave your past, he forgives your present. The same transforming power that changed you from your past is going to transform your present. And this good, sovereign, loving God is guiding everything in your life so that you will have a good purpose every single day. And what, what does it do? Um, you know that everything in your life is a gospel opportunity. You know that every person and every, everybody that you meet, that is an opportunity to love somebody, to train somebody, to encourage somebody. Your present, it is an opportunity to rescue people who are struggling. Man, God has given us a purpose today. What about our future? And your future is secure. There's no way you can lose the good things that God has planned for you. You can have a lot of money and lose it. If it depending on what you're living for in your life, there is nothing that is secure. You can lose your health. You can get bad news. But you cannot lose your security in your relationship with Christ. Uh, God is planning to bless you beyond imagination. Uh, let's, let's look at this uh, slide, um, 1 Corinthians 2.9. Let's put that one up there. It says this, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, that's what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, when you think about the gospel and the way it impacts every part of life, um, it's not a surprise that it is we live the gospel every single day. So this morning, we're going to see three important things. You've probably already seen a whole bunch of things, right? We're going to see three really important things in the first 18 verses of Philippians. The first thing is that when you have a gospel-saturated life, when the purpose of your life is the gospel, your prayer, is going to be pervasive. You are going to pray about everything all the time. That is, by the way, one of the things that stood out to me when I came to this church. I'm new here, moved here from Santa Clarita, didn't know anybody, didn't know anybody, anything about this area, and I knew that there were people who met at 8 o'clock in the morning to pray for me. That gave me such amazing confidence that this is all going to work out. Everything is going to be good because people are asking God for help on my behalf. Your prayer is going to be properly focused. So it's going to be pervasive. You're going to pray for everybody about everything, and it's going to be properly focused. You're going to be praying about the right things. That's what happens when the gospel, when you're living the gospel. That's the first thing. The second thing is that genuine love is going to flow from your heart toward everybody. It's going to be amazing how loving this place is going to be, how loving you will be. Uh, When you see people and you're irritated by them and you don't like them, it's because you're not thinking about life through the lens of the gospel. When you see people and you love everyone, well, that's the gospel. And the other thing is that you are going to be relentless in your proclamation of the gospel. Have you ever heard that statement that says, preach the gospel all the time, if necessary, use words? Um. I like the idea behind that, but that is the most ridiculous statement I think I have ever heard. Um, You should preach the gospel with your life, but that is absolutely meaningless and worthless without words to go along with it. And we get people who think that leaving a big tip is preaching the gospel. No, it's not. 
leave a big tip, and then preach the gospel. So let's jump in here. Uh, Philippians. Um, I'm going to tell you just a couple things about the book of Philippians, and then we're going to read through these verses. First of all, it's a prison epistle. So the Apostle Paul's arrested. He's put in prison. He writes four books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And when you read Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and you think about these books, you can tell Paul wrote them at the same time. They're the same themes, sometimes almost in the same order. What he takes two verses to say here, he says in one verse here. I mean, these books, like, they go together. And so if you read through them, you'll, if you understand they're prison epistles, that makes sense. And so Paul writes this. Um, Philippi was an important city. It's on this main highway. And it is a, um, it's a Roman city, and it produces gold. So it was built as a mining town. In fact... Uh, it was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. You ever heard of Alexander the Great? His dad built this city. Now, one of the things that's unique is that this city was full of, like, Greeks and Romans. So there was a lot of, you know, uh, racial tension, in a sense, different ways of life. And you see that in the church. There were some of those struggles. But this town was full of, like, Roman soldiers, retired Roman soldiers, people of prominence and importance. And so this city valued their citizenship. Um, they were Roman citizens. And God is going to use that for the gospel. You'll see why in just a minute. But so this is a very important Roman city. In fact, this city didn't pay taxes. And so they loved their Roman citizenship. And what does Paul write to them and say? He says, yeah, value your earthly citizenship, but you are citizens of heaven. Uh, the way that you value your earthly citizenship, no, your heavenly citizenship takes prominence over that. So there's a lot of application we're pretty glad to be American citizens, right? I mean, you travel abroad, and it's nice to be an American citizen. Um, you think about the people who get captured, and then the, you know, the special forces go in and rescue them. I'm glad I'm an American. But you know what? We think, and what is prominent is our heavenly citizenship. Um, so this is pretty, uh, a pretty important thing. Now, this church gets started in an amazingly miraculous way. So the Apostle Paul's on a second missionary journey, and you can throw up that map of the second missionary journey. Um, it's slide six. And so, um, so Paul's on a second missionary journey, and when he's Troas, that first area, when he's in that area, he sees this vision, and there's a man in Macedonia. You see um, on, the, on the top left, it says Macedonia. So this man in Macedonia in this vision saying, Paul, come help us. And Paul realizes God is sending me to this area. So he goes to Philippi, and he preaches, and that's where prominent women. Now, there's no synagogue in this town. It's not a Jewish city. And so these prominent women hear the gospel, and Lydia is one of those. And it says God opens her heart to believe the gospel, and she and her whole family get saved and get baptized. And she invites them into her house. And then as Paul's going around preaching, another miracle happens. There's this demon-possessed lady. By the way, this is all in Acts chapter 16. There's this demon-possessed lady following them around saying, these are servants of the Most High God. These are the servants of the Most High God. And the apostle Paul gets so irritated, he casts this demon out of, out of this woman. Now, she was a fortune teller. And her owner, she was a slave, her owners made money by her telling people their fortune. By the way, you ever go to a fortune teller? You ever read a horoscope? Um, you ever go to a palm reader? See, all that stuff is satanic. Same thing happening in this period is happening today. You go sit around with one of those people and they go, oh, let me tell you about your brother. Let me tell you about your aunt. Let me tell you about your uncle. Let me tell you about your future. Uh, when that happens, that is Satan speaking directly to you. Bad idea to go somewhere and say, Satan, tell me about my life and my future. But what happens is Paul casts this demon out of this girl, and all of a sudden their masters go, we have no hope of earning a living. And so Satan uses their greed to try to hinder the gospel. So he has Paul and Silas beaten. He has them thrown into prison. 
And so they're thrown into prison, and what happens? They're singing, all these amazing things are happening, and an angel, an earthquake happens, and an angel comes, and the, Paul's prison bonds are released. And all of a sudden, the jailer wakes up, and he says, oh, my goodness, I've lost my prisoners. He's about to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, don't kill yourself. We're all here. That jailer and his whole family get saved. And then um, they find out that Paul is a Roman citizen, and they beat him without a trial. And so they're thinking, oh, no. We beat a Roman citizen. Now, they value their Roman citizenship. They value their tax-free status. And they could lose it all when, they, when it's found out that they commit this crime against a Roman citizen. And so they say, hey, just release them. Tell them they can go. And he's like, no. No, tell them to come get us himself, themselves. And so that church probably... Uh, had special protection after that because of what they did to Paul. And so this church just flourishes. They love Paul. They've seen him suffer for the sake of the gospel. It just is amazing what happens here. And so Paul's going to write, and he's comforting them because he knows that they love him. He's going to comfort them um, by his well-being and the way he sees what is going on in his life. Let's read Philippians chapter 1, and let's look at these verses. Philippians 1 says this, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to make a couple quick observations here. Paul is writing to the saints. Do you know who the saints are? It's every Christian in the church. People talk about St. Paul and St. this person and St. that person. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. And as Paul writes this letter, he is writing it to all the saints. And then he gives a special mention of the overseers, those are elders, and the deacons. So, so you already see in this new church, this young church, this biblical leadership structure. They have overseers and they have deacons. But you'll notice he doesn't write to the overseers. Now, let me write to you because the people are unimportant and they don't matter. Let me just write to the leaders in the church because the church really belongs to the leaders. The leaders are the ones who are important. No, he writes to the church, to all the saints and then gives a special mention to the overseers and deacons. And that's one of the things we remember. The pastors, the elders, the leaders in a church, first and foremost, are members of the church. They're just, we're all a part of the body of Christ. We all function. And yet he gives a special mention to these leaders. It's amazing how just in these little things, you could correct so many things that go wrong in the structure of a church. When leaders think they own the church, they think it belongs to them, they think people are there to serve them instead of realizing they're there to serve and care for people. And when people forget that Christ is the head of the church, that God has something to say through every faithful believer, not just people in positions of authority. And yet there is a special mention of people in positions of authority. Um, God does intend for there to be leaders in a church, overseers, and deacons. Now that deacon, that's an official title. And I remember one time early in my ministry, uh, there was a deacon who was just going on and on about how his exalted title and how important he was and how he wasn't getting the credit that he deserved. And I remember just sitting down with him at breakfast one day and I just said, um, you do know what the term deacon means, right? And he says, yes. He starts talking about this exalted position of leadership in the church. And I said, you know, it's just the Greek word for servant, right? It is not. I don't believe that. And it was just like I had, he was the one to debate with me about that. And I'm like, well, this is easily resolved. <laughs> we could just get a Greek dictionary and look up the definition of the word. It just means servant because that's how God leads in the church is through servanthood. Now let's look at prayer, the power, the pervasive, properly focused prayer that comes out of a gospel-saturated life. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. 
making my prayer with joy because of your partnership from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Man, do you see in verse 3 there how many times the word all is mentioned? It's this all-encompassing prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance. Every time he thinks of them, he thanks God. His prayer is directed to God. He doesn't look at them, and he's not thanking them necessarily right here. He's just thankful to God. He sees God's power, the work that God is doing in their life. And so he thanks in every remembrance of you. They're always on his mind. And he always does it in every prayer. He is praying all the time. And he never forgets to thank God for them making um, every prayer of mine for you all, like he's thinking of them as individuals, making my prayer with joy. His heart is overflowing as he thinks of them. So we have this lady in church. I was tempted to mention her, but I'm not going to. But every week she gives us these really long (laughs) prayer requests. And she lists like 50 people. And can you pray for this person about this and this person about this and this person about this? And there's these long handwritten prayers. And I was just thinking if I was to write some of these prayers, I might make a template and copy and paste um, to not have to write these things. But you know what I was thinking about when I read this? I thought, that makes me think of this lady. She always has all these people in mind, and she's praying always for really valuable spiritual things. And I love praying for that, that list of people because of this expression of her heart for them. And so, by the way, we love it when you pray. Your prayer requests don't have to be short. They can. But, um, you know, that is what this church is like, is just people who are praying pervasively. When you think about the gospel, um, you know, God opened up Lydia's heart. Unbelievers are blind without God's intervention. When, you, when you're focused on the gospel, you pray. Because apart from prayer, hearts don't change. It is not our magic words. It's not that we're smart enough. It's not that we can convince people. It's that they need God's hand in their life. And so when you think rightly about the gospel, you pray for people all the time. And so you have that, and look at, the, look at the focus of this prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's praying about spiritual things. Have you ever thought about the topics of your prayer requests? When you're praying, Lord, uh, help my car. It's in the shop. Help it not to be expensive. Lord, I lost my cat. Help me find my cat. Lord, I can't find my keys. Help me find my keys. Like, have you ever thought about the things that you pray for? By the way, I pray for my keys every time I lose. In fact, every time I lose anything and I'm starting to look for it, I always immediately say, God, help me find this. Here's the cool thing. God cares about the little details of your life. When you, when you talk to your heavenly father who's in control of everything and you lost your keys, God cares about you. He'll help you find your keys. When you love your dog and your dog is sick, you can pray about that because God cares about every detail of your life. But when your prayer is solely focused on those things and not things of, a, of eternal value, um, there's something seriously wrong. Like I've seen parents whose kids uh, want to date somebody that the Bible says they shouldn't date. But their kid's emotionally distressed. I want this person. I need them to be happy. And then I see parents actually pray for that. How could a parent pray for something that would be spiritually destructive to their kids or a person? God says this is wrong, and I've seen people pray for things that are wrong. Or Lord, my my kid is struggling. They're going through a hard time, or or I'm struggling. I'm going through a hard time, and the prayer is, take this away. Make me happy. uh, Make my life pleasant and comfortable. Instead of praying, God, don't let them have that. Or the times that somebody's walking away from the Lord. You ever prayed for destruction and difficulty and pain and sorrow? Like there's sometimes somebody's living in a a rebellious life and we go, 
Lord, please help them not to suffer. I've prayed for people who are wandering from God. They know the truth. I've prayed, Lord, help them get fired. Help everything go wrong in their life. Help them get into a car accident. And they'll come to me and they'll say, oh, man, this is terrible. This is going wrong. Look at this terrible thing in my life. And I just think, and I hope that you learn that living life in rebellion against God is terrible so that you'll come back, put your faith in Christ, and trust him. And it's not that I pray like meanly toward people, but I understand that sometimes a person's earthly blessing results in their eternal destruction. And so a lot of times pain and sorrow, like that's just God's guidance that you're, you're living life in the wrong way. Sometimes emotional distress is just pain nerves for ignoring God in your life. You know, um, we need to be people who are praying with the gospel in mind, understanding what is significant and what is important. So my dad uh, lived his life in rebellion against God. And uh, he ends up having heart attacks. And we just always prayed, Lord, give him more time, give him more time, give him more time. And uh, at a certain point, God just kept giving him more time. And I thought, okay, he doesn't need more time. He needs to do something with the time God's giving him. And so my dad has a stroke, and I remember him laying in this bed. He couldn't move. The doctor said he will never talk again. All he could do is look at me and blink. And I remember, like, probably a year or two later, my dad is up. Um, all these things, like all the things in his mind that separated him from the gospel, God erased his hard drive. He hit delete. And um, all these things that had been a hindrance to the gospel were gone, And my dad couldn't take care of himself, so my mom took him to church every week. And what I didn't realize is he went to church because he wasn't in control of himself. Somebody else had to take care of him. So he went to church every week. He sat in the front row, and as the preacher was preaching God's word, God rewrote the information on his hard drive. And he ends up calling me and asking me to baptize him. I'm like, Dad, so what's up? And we have this conversation. My dad comes to know the Lord. And so I'm talking to one of his sisters, and I was just saying, I'm so thankful for the way that God used the stroke in my dad's life and how he's come to know Christ. And so then she goes around to all the other family members, and she goes, that Roger hates his dad. He is so mean-spirited. He's glad he had a stroke. (laughs) So I had to go have another conversation with that family member and kind of clarify things. But you know what? Do we think about life truly in regard to other people and in regard to ourselves as it relates to the gospel message and what's of eternal significance? Um, Prayer is powerful. So here's the second thing that we're going to see. Let's look at verse 7 through 11. It says this, Philippians 1, 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And here we see prayer in here again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Have you ever heard, uh, so so a gospel-centered life means that we have genuine love that flows from the heart. Have you ever heard somebody say, I love you, but I just don't like you right now? Or have you ever heard somebody say, love's not a feeling, it's a decision? So here's what I want you to know. Love is a decision. We do make a decision to love people. There's an element of love that is commitment. And if I feel like loving my spouse today, you know, you have this whole thing today where, well, we're just not in love, so we can't stay married. Or we fell in love, so we should get married. And people live their life based on the ups and downs of their feelings. And so here's the fact. The fact is that love is a decision. It is a commitment to honor God. There's times I feel my relationship with God. There's times I feel my love for God. And there's times I don't. 
and whether or not I feel it, I've made a decision to obey and follow Christ. There's times in a marriage that you feel love for your spouse, and there are times that you don't. And that changes absolutely nothing about what God expects from you in your relationship with him or your relationship with your spouse. No Christian should ever talk about a relationship as we fell out of love. That is so foreign to any Christian thinking. I'm not saying Christians don't say things like that, but when Christians say things like that, they have divorced their brain from what God says about life. So we are always love. Love is a decision. We love people that God tells us to love. We keep the commitments to him and to the people in our life. That's why in marriage ceremonies, it's primarily a commitment before God. It doesn't matter if you're happy. Marriage is not for you, and as long as it works out for you, marriage is forever, and it is before God. That's the most significant part of a marriage commitment. But people think that emotions are not a part or unimportant. And if you read this passage, you realize that is completely wrong. If you are loving your spouse out of discipline, excellent, keep going. But you better do something to change that. If your relationship with God is something that is purely an exercise of discipline, hey, keep that going. But you better do something to change that. If your emotions are absent in these things that God has called us to do, you need to get your emotions involved. We don't live based solely on our emotions, but we do not live without emotions. Look what Paul says here. This is like so powerful. It is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Now, I want to tell you something about this feeling. This word for feel is to think. Your feelings flow out of your thinking. And often, when you don't feel a certain way towards somebody, it's because you're not thinking rightly about them. So this is a thinking word, though it brings with it this idea of how we feel. It is only right for me to feel this way about you. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. He has affection for them, and he loves them because they are his family. They are committed to the same things that he's committed to, what he has given his life to, which is the gospel this church has given their life to. And that gives him this powerful emotional bond with them. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you. That is a feeling word. I yearn for you. I cannot wait to be with you. That's a feeling word. But then listen to this, with the affection of Christ Jesus. So what happens? We have emotions. And actually, did you know that God loves people through you? You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And as you think about people the way God wants you to think about people, the Holy Spirit loves people through you. And the affection that you have for people is not just your affection for them. It is God's affection for them flowing through you. So God loves people through us. Um, you can put up that passage in, uh, if you can find it, you can put up that passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's see if they, yeah, 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 18, it is slide 10. Did you know that that is what drives evangelism? Is God's heart reflected in us? Look at this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled him to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that Christ... That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God doesn't count people's sins against them. He loves them, and he's given us that message. Look at this next verse, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you 
on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It is God's heart begging people to be reconciled to him. We should have the heart of God. Do you want to know what our problem is? We don't think about other people the way God thinks about them, the way God forgives them, the way God is gracious to them, the way God looks at broken lives and people who don't do the things that God says they should do, and he loves them. He sent Jesus to die for them. He will always forgive them. He will always restore them. The door is always open in a relationship with Christ. And what do we do? We don't think about people like that. Partly because we don't think about ourselves the way God thinks about us. Remember that parable of the forgiving servant? Um, He was forgiven and then he didn't forgive and God came back and said, okay, I'm going to remove your forgiveness. Or Jesus, you know, when you're praying for forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. See, a lot of times we feel like other people's sins really bad, our sins not so bad. Everybody who's hard on other people always has an inaccurate view of themselves, always. Because when you see how much you need God's love and forgiveness, it makes it easy to forgive other people. It makes it easy to love other people. And so we need to think about people. We need to have the heart toward them because we know how God thinks about them. We know how God thinks about us. And then we feel that way toward them. And then here's the final thing that we're going to consider this morning. Look at verse 12. Here's how Paul views his circumstances. Take a second and think about your circumstances. Think about the negative circumstances you have experienced in life the difficulties, the problems, the things that you could say, if I could push this button, I would take this away. Could be cancer, could be broken relationships with people, could be job problems. Like what is wrong in your life? What are your circumstances that are devastating to you? Being robbed, somebody committing a crime against you, um, being misjudged, having difficulties. What are these negative circumstances in your life? And I just want to challenge you that if you think about them rightly, you'll be thankful for them. You'll be filled with joy um, because that's how Christians think about difficulties. We don't like the difficulties. I'm just telling you right now, if I get in a car accident and lose my leg, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm so thankful I lost my leg. Like, I don't want to lose my leg. I remember as a kid thinking, if I ever got paralyzed, I would rather die than be paralyzed. Instead of realizing, like Joni, Johnny, (laughs) I always say it wrong, who who was paralyzed, looks back at that and said, God blessed me amazingly through it. Because when you're committed to the gospel, it changes how you view everything that happens to you in your life. Let's read this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's partly writing to these Philippians. They love him. They're distressed because they found out he's in prison. And he's like, I'm going to encourage them. They've heard these terrible things have happened to me, but I'm going to encourage them by telling them what they really care about. The gospel's being advanced. I want you to know these bad things that have happened to me are good so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. For some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Okay, so a few things here. He's thrown in prison, and what did that do? It gave him a new audience. The prison guards, could you imagine you're a prison guard chained to the Apostle Paul? He could have been saying, God, all I've done is be faithful to you. I've just tried to please you, and you get me thrown in prison. And instead he's saying, God, thank you for this person sitting next to me that I get to share the gospel with. Um, Okay, you get cancer, and you're going to cancer treatment. You could say, oh, my goodness, this is horrible. Why am I here? This is unbelievable. Or you could say, guess what? I get to see a nurse 
every, every four weeks, I'm going to go sit by this nurse, and I get to talk to her about how I'm feeling and what's going on in my life. What about the person sitting next to me who's also taking cancer treatments? I have an opportunity to share the gospel with them and to talk to them. What about people who are going through this that I can come alongside and encourage? Our difficulties and tragedies and trials give us a new audience. You want to know why some people uh, don't really care? And if they're not encouraged and they're not helped? It's because when they go in for their chemo treatment, they are not thinking about sharing the gospel. They are not thinking about their hope in the future. They are not thinking about the fact that this nurse, while physically healthy, needs the Lord. This other patient, while they have cancer, their days are potentially numbered. They need to know Jesus. And as they go through their life, they do not think about life through the lens of the gospel. And that this is an incredibly wonderful opportunity. I don't want to get sick, and I don't want to have cancer. But I've seen people die of cancer who have approached this one way and those who have approached it through the lens of the gospel. I've thought about Sunday mornings, um, people who, man, they can stub their toe and they'll stay home. It's like, what is an excuse for me to not come to church? Oh, there's a football game on I like. I ain't going. Oh, I slept. I was, I was up too late last night. I ain't going. I mean, seriously, there are people, and it's because they don't understand the purpose of church, but there are people who will miss church for anything. Oh, I, think I, I think I have a headache. Yeah, I think maybe I have a headache. I think I'll stay home. There's this lady in our church, and uh, she had cancer, had cancer five times. And every time it came back, and this was her last bout with cancer, and she showed up, and she sat in the back of the church, and she had an oxygen tank. She could barely stand up. Eventually, she's showing up in a wheelchair, and she felt sick, and she felt terrible all the time. And she never missed church because she was there to encourage people. She realized that she needed love and encouragement. And I, and I remember one day somebody, was, somebody who worked for the church was telling me why they couldn't make it <laughs> to church. Not this church, a different church. And I just remember thinking, man, what a lame excuse because I walk in the back of the church and here's this person with these major things going on in their life who didn't miss being there. And she approached everything. She shared the gospel with her nurses. She shared the gospel with fellow people. And when I was going over to her house to pray for her in, in her last days, she was encouraging me, telling me how thankful she was for me and just a blessing to me. Like, I'm walking away from that thinking, she helped me. And you have other people that all they think about is themselves and their own world. God intends us to view our circumstances through the gospel. And when we have an eternal perspective, it has a significant impact on how we live. A brief comment about these people. Some people were inspired. They were afraid to go to prison, but they saw Paul go to prison, and it inspired them to preach the gospel and not be afraid of prison. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3 where some people are saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, and just this rivalry? Well, some of those people struggling with that rivalry, the selfish, bad motives, some of those people are like, Paul's locked up in prison. Who's going to get his crowds now? Now I'm going to preach the gospel, and you guys are going to come here from me. And it was all about their ego. And they thought they could hurt Paul because they were kind of mad at him. You ever seen, like, competition and rivalry within church? You know what Paul says? <laughs> He's like, if it was about Paul, he'd be ticked. If it was about his crowds, he'd be hurt. And these people thought they could hurt Paul because they were prideful and self-centered, and what they did was about their ego. And they thought Paul was that way. And Paul's just like, I'm thankful Christ is being preached, and this has never been about me. That doesn't hurt me when people take my crowds. They're not my crowds. They're Jesus' crowds. Kind of like John the Baptist when his disciples said, hey, all the crowds are following Jesus. And John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. And so Paul's commitment was to the gospel. And um, I just want to encourage us that we've been saved. The gospel is the most significant thing. And at this point, we're going to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
And so I want to just read Romans chapter 5, verse 7, and I want, you to, I want to remind you about the gospel. You are a sinful person, separated from God, and apart from Christ, you have no hope. And this is the amazing thing about the gospel. It is for every person. It says this in Romans 5, 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you and me when we didn't deserve it. Look what it says in the next verse, verse 8. I'm sorry. There you go. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves us. And that is actually what we celebrate. We celebrate that our salvation is not based on us. It is based on Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians. And let's, uh, let's drink the cup. Oh, bread. Sorry, don't open it yet. You got to do the bread first. Otherwise, you'll drip grape juice on you. Oh, thank you. Let's look at the bread. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember that Jesus died for us. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Lord, I thank you for, for the gospel. Lord, I just pray that you would help each of us to live it every day. God, that we would pray for people knowing that you are the one who changes hearts. And Lord, knowing that you can change any heart. Lord, help us to be people that love people with deep affection. Lord, that we are humble toward people, that we love people that our heart is your heart because it's your heart that is in us. And Lord, help us to view our circumstances from an eternal perspective. Lord, that we would desire people to know you and to have the blessed relationship and the wisdom. And that, God, we would live out a life of worship for you. And that we would view every circumstance as an opportunity to put that on display. And so, God, we pray that that you would bless us, help this, to church, this church to be a church like the Philippian church in your name. Amen.